Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 39, the book of Matthew, chapter 11. From the panoramic view, perhaps one of the main takeaways from all four Gospel accounts is that Yeshua was misunderstood by his own Jewish countrymen, and surprisingly, by those that one might think would have understood him the best. And since it is various individuals and various groups of people that misunderstand who he is and what he's come to do, he employs several different methods to inform them. Yet at times, his responses to questions asked of him seem awfully cryptic, not only to those he is speaking, but even to his followers that would come later, followers from all eras, including our own. Chapter 11 of the Gospel of Matthew opens with just such an issue. And oddly enough, the person of interest who seems to be confused by who Jesus is is John the Baptist. And let's begin by rereading just the opening section of Matthew chapter 11, just the first 19 verses. So open your Bibles, please, to um, 1236, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, 1236, 1236. Follow along with me, please. After Yeshua had finished instructing the twelve Talmudim, the twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns nearby. Now, meanwhile, Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist, who had been put in prison, heard what the Messiah had been doing. So he sent a messenger to him through his, his disciples, asking, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for someone else? And Yeshua answered, Go and tell Yochanan what you are hearing and seeing. The blind are seeing again, the lame are walking, people with sarat, it's skin diseases, all right, are being healed, the deaf are hearing, and the dead are being raised, and the good news is being told to the poor, and how blessed is anyone not offended by me? And as they were leaving, Yeshua began speaking about Yochanan to the crowds. What did you go out to the desert to see? Reeds swaying in the wind? No. Then what did you go out to see? Someone who was well-dressed. Well-dressed people live in king's palaces. No. So why did you go out? To see a prophet. Yes. And I tell you, he's much more than a prophet. This is the one about whom the Tanakh says, See, I'm sending out my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Yes, I tell you that among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than Yochanan the Immerser. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the time of Yochanan the Immerser until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence. Yes, violent ones are trying to snatch it away. For all the prophets in the Torah prophesied until Yochanan. Indeed, if you were willing to accept it, he is Eliyahu, he is Elijah, whose coming was predicted. If you have ears, then hear. Oh, what can I compare this generation with? They're like children, sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to each other. Well, we made happy music, but you wouldn't dance. We made sad music, but you wouldn't cry. For you know, Yochanan came fasting, not drinking. So they say, well, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating freely, drinking wine. So they say, aha, a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, the proof of wisdom is in the actions it produces. The setting is this. 
Christ has finished instructing His 12 disciples for the time being, and He sent them on their way to the Jewish people of the Galilee. He too is now traveling, primarily around the Galilee, to various towns and villages, teaching and preaching, but He's doing it alone. Nonetheless, the crowds are ever-present, and some miles away, John the Baptist languishes in prison, very likely at Machiris, all right, King, uh, rather, Herod Antipas' fortress city that lies about 15 miles to the east of the mouth of the Jordan River. Now, knowing that his end would happen there soon, John uses two of his own disciples to take an urgent message to Yeshua. And the message is, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for someone else? Now, even when we take into account the Jewish cultural purpose and mission, uh, rather aspect of, uh, of this question, a plain reading is that John has doubts about Yeshua's purpose and mission, about his place in redemption history. Yet Christianity so elevates the Baptist's person and status placing him on a lofty pedestal of near-spiritual perfection that Christian Bible scholars, more often than not, have tried to find some other meaning of John's inquiry of Christ that sidesteps the obvious. A most popular option among theologians is that Matthew is mistaken. Or perhaps words have been corrupted in the oldest Greek manuscripts that we have of Matthew's Gospel. In other words, to easily solve this problem, it's just dismissed. In John's inquiry about Yeshua's identity never actually happened. See, the rationale for this is because John is recorded as saying some things concerning Yeshua that seem to mean he is quite settled as to who Yeshua is. Back in Matthew 3.11, it's true that I am immersing you in water so that you might turn from sins to God, but the one coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy even to carry his sandals, and he will immerse you in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and in fire. Well, that's followed up in Matthew 3 in verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. I am well pleased with him. In the Gospel of John, we read in John 1.29, The next day Yochanan saw Yeshua coming towards him and said, Look, God's Lamb, the one who's taking away the sin of the world. See, all of these statements, assume so many Bible scholars, amount to John saying, here's the Messiah. So, reasons most Bible commentators that I've reviewed, there is no way John can say these things and then turn around later and ask Yeshua if he's the one who is to come or if there's another. Bottom line, he never said it. Now, another option is that John is sending a coded message to Yeshua. And even Yeshua's response to John is coded. The premise is that Rome was always on the lookout for the next Messiah of the Jews. Not because Rome in any way saw this Messiah from a religious or a spiritual viewpoint, but rather because they well knew that the Jewish people believed that their Messiah would be a great warrior leader that would lead them in a successful rebellion against Rome. Many would-be Messiahs had come and gone by Yeshua's day. More would come after His death. Therefore, the reasoning is that John and Yeshua were using coded words to communicate so that only Jews would understand, but the Romans would be none the wiser. Several of the early church fathers decided that John's question to Yeshua was but a veiled teaching lesson for the sake of his followers. That is, while John never actually doubted, the construction of his question was intended to instruct his followers in faithfulness. There are a handful of other options and and solutions for what the church has typically seen as this problem question of John the Baptist. 
but these should suffice to make my point. Now, I want to briefly address the two most popular solutions and begin by clarifying that the rather common claim that John had made statements proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah is no more true than that Jesus has publicly called Himself the Messiah. Such statements are assumed, and they're often read back into the Gospel accounts, but they're not actually there. Christians, in hindsight and using our unique brand of religious jargon, take the statements that God said from heaven that this is His Son in whom He's well pleased, and that John calls Jesus the Lamb, the Lamb of God as equivalent titles to the title of Messiah. Now, this is not necessarily true from a first century Jewish standpoint. In earlier lessons I have explained to you that all the kings of Israel were called God's Son, or the Son of God. In no way was Son of God considered an exclusive or an alternate title for the Messiah. Now, For John, who after immersing Yeshua heard God's booming voice from heaven making the pronouncement that Yeshua was God's Son, this could just as easily have meant to him that Yeshua was to be Israel's next earthly king. Which, by the way, was the nearly universal hope and expectation of the Jewish people, which kept Rome on edge. Now, as for the matter of Yeshua being God's Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, the first thing we must look at is the fuller context of where the Baptist statement to that effect is made in John's Gospel. In John 1, 28-34, we read this. All this took place in Beit Anya, Bethany, east of the Jordan, where Yochanan, John, was immersing. The next day Yochanan saw Yeshua coming towards him, and he said, Look, God's Lamb, the one who's taking away the sin of the world. This is the man I was talking about when I said, After me is coming someone who, ha who has come to rank above me, because he existed before me. I myself did not know who he was. But the reason I came immersing with water was so that he might be made known to Israel. Then Yochanan gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit coming down from heaven like a dove and remaining on him. I myself did not know who he was. But the one who sent me to immerse in water said to me, The one whom you see, the Spirit descending and remaining, this is the one who immerses in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, notice a couple of points in this passage. First, it's twice maintained John the Baptist didn't know who Yeshua of Nazareth was. Second, after immersing Yeshua and hearing God's pronouncement, John's conclusion is not that Jesus is the Messiah in the sense of being the divine Redeemer of Israel, rather, it is that this is the Son of God. Again, to the Jews of that day, Son of God meant anointed Israelite king. The Spirit descending upon Jesus that was illustrated and compared to a dove coming to rest, that was Yeshua's anointing. Customarily, for centuries, a new king of Israel was literally anointed with olive oil, usually by a prophet or the high priest. The purpose of this anointing with oil was to symbolize. Oil in the Bible is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The Ruach HaKodesh. It was just that's descending, if you would, upon a king. The same thing that happened to Christ. In fact, the English term Messiah, which is often mistaken, mistakenly said to mean Savior, is in fact a transliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach. And Mashiach means 
anointed one. So biblical Israelite kings and prophets were regularly referred to as anointed ones, Mashiach, Messiah, because they were indeed specially anointed with oil for service to God. A king of Israel was considered to have been sent or set apart by God and in a sense adopted by God and thus always in the Old Testament he was termed a son of God. Now no doubt, no doubt, John understood that Jesus was more than a typical Israelite king or a prophet and he was more than a typical tzaddik, typical Jewish holy man. But we do not find John ever uttering the word Messiah as the identification of Yeshua. And neither do we find to this point in Matthew's Gospel Yeshua uttering that word about himself. Let me be clear so there can be no more mistake. I'm not saying that this should bring doubt to our minds about Jesus' Messiah. I mean, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight. So we know firmly, without reservation, that Yeshua is God's divine Messiah and our Savior. However, this was not at all understood among the people Jesus' ministry encountered up to this point and up to the point of John the Baptist's execution because Jesus had not clearly said so. Even though Bible academics often try to put those words into John's and Yeshua's mouths. Now, as for the issue of John identifying Yeshua as the lamb that takes away sins, lambs have been used for centuries, virtually daily, by the thousands, as sacrifices burnt up on the temple to take away the sins of the penitent Jews who brought them. Therefore, it is questionable to me that John was envisioning Yeshua in the same light as the Passover lamb of the Exodus, because the Passover lamb had little to do with sin. Rather, the Passover lamb had to do with what? Delivery from bondage from an oppressing nation and God averting His judgment from His faithful worshipers. Christians sometimes try to mince words and say things like, well, in the Old Testament sins were atoned for, but in the New Testament sins are taken away. This is a contrivance that attempts to make sins atoned for and sins taken away as having fundamentally different meaning. In fact, in the Yom Kippur scapegoat ritual, a goat is sent off into the wilderness to its death as symbolic of sins being taken away and returned to its source. But that doesn't mean the end of sin itself, as it is sometimes taken among Christian denominations to mean. Now here's the point. John the Baptist sent his message to Christ about whether he was the one to come because he simply was not certain as to exactly what or who Yeshua was. Just as today, there are vast gulfs among denominations and various solid Bible commentators in their understanding about the book of Revelation concerning just how those ancient prophecies about an apocalypse that's still future to us are going to play out, so it was for the Jews of Christ's day about the nature and the identification of a deliverer that would be sent to them from God. They didn't have the insights and the hindsights that we have today to know precisely who Jesus was or even how to identify the true Savior or even exactly what He came to do. The Jewish people had a number of prophecies that were even ancient to them to try and glean information about a Messiah, but for them, Interpreting those prophecies could mean a number of different things.
even though in the end, history would show which one of those interpretations would turn out to be correct. But you know, it wasn't for the lack of their trying. Now, John the Baptist, despite being pretty weird, was an ordinary man. It's only that God used him in an extraordinary way. And his cousin Yeshua held him in the highest regard. But John had faults and quirks and frailties and seems to have even gotten some things wrong. Apparently, he was also kind of hot headed and imprudent. He had a hard time controlling his tongue because he was arrested and put in prison for the crime of publicly denouncing Herod Antipas's marriage to Herodias. Now, why did he do that? I mean, for what good purpose in service to God might that have served? I mean, if John truly understood that Yeshua was the divine Messiah, why would he continue to maintain a separate flock of disciples of his own that openly questioned why Yeshua's disciples would, be, uh, would believe different things than they do about fasting, prayer, mourning, etc.? See, things simply were not sorted out enough just yet such that John could have a, a settled understanding of Yeshua. Therefore, we need to give the imprisoned John a break. <laughs> and at the same time, trust the Scriptures that we claim that we do. The man was under incredible stress, knowing that he had days at most to live, and he simply did not know if Yeshua was the one to come, or as a great miracle, as great a miracle a worker and a teacher as he was, was he maybe just a precursor to another? In fact, what did John mean by asking Yeshua if he was the one to come? Think about that statement. Are you the one to come? I mean, I can only surmise that he means the one that he firmly believed he was supposed to make a way for in the wilderness. And to his mind, he'd already accomplished this. And if that was to be the peak purpose of his life's labors and his service to God, wouldn't he want to know for certain if Yeshua was that one? Wouldn't you? Or if maybe another prophet, like himself, might also be making a way in the wilderness for yet another person to arrive? You know, when we remake John back into a real person and stop injecting Christian doctrines and dubious assumptions into the equation, we can properly understand what's taking place in this scene. And this conclusion is further verified when we read Yeshua's response to John, starting in verse 4. Jesus tells John's two disciples to take back with them both what they have seen with their own eyes and what they're hearing. That is, what they are witnessing along with the testimony of others. So, not surprisingly, they no doubt saw Christ do at least some of the miraculous things that they had until then only heard about, but more for proof of who He is, Yeshua characterizes His deeds in a way that at least the more learned Jews might have understood, and I assume He believes John would have understood. So he goes on to say, he has healed the blind, made lame people to walk, cleansed the unclean from Sarat, cured the deaf, he's even resurrected dead people back to life. This is not 
a random choice of accomplishments. See, what Jesus does is to list a series of prophetic fulfillments in Him, in verses 4 and 5, that are taken from several Messianic predictions in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 26, 19, Your dead will live. My corpses will rise, awaken seeing you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the morning dew, and the earth will bring the ghosts to life. Isaiah 20, 19, On that day the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame man will leap like a deer, and the mute person's tongue will sing. For in the desert springs will burst forth, streams of water in the Arabah. Isaiah 61.1 The Spirit of Adonai Elohim is upon me because Adonai has anointed me to announce good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to let out into light those bound in the dark. See, included in this list of prophecies is the prophecy of Isaiah 61.1, because the mention of good news to the poor. But I don't want you to miss this matter of the freedom of the captives. It's interesting. See, this is not about the Baptist being in jail, because clearly Yeshua has no intent of finding a way to get John released. Rather, this is about the messianic prophecy that we find in Psalm 68:18 that Paul would rightly understand and then go on to speak about it in Ephesians 4:8. And there it referred to Yeshua after his death and resurrection descending into Abraham's bosom to let the righteous dead free that they might go to heaven. Verse 6, which continues the response to John's inquiry, concludes with, And how blessed is anyone who's not offended by me. Now, although this is a general statement, Jesus was still reacting to John's question. And we find the same words in Luke 7.23, so these haven't come from Matthew's own mind. Yeshua has pronounced a beatitude. He's pronounced a blessing to end his six brief clauses about who he is. Now, Ben Witherington III has noticed that when you convert into Aramaic, those six clauses plus the blessing that ends them, you get something quite poetic. It's becoming more and more clear among Bible historians that Aramaic was widely spoken among the Jew, uh, Jewish people in Jesus' time, and Jesus was fluid in it as well. Now, English translations of verse 6, they vary widely from meaning how blessed is anyone who is not offended by me, to how blessed is anyone who is not offended because of me, even how blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble over me. Now, frankly, I'm not certain how best to take the meaning, although I don't understand why John might be blessed by not being offended by Christ. Christ has certainly not said anything offensive to him that is recorded, but if Mr. Witherington is right, and the words of Christ were originally said in the form of Aramaic, uh, an, an Aramaic poet, poetry saying, that might be the key behind properly understanding the meaning behind Yeshua's words. Therefore, I want to put forward just this one intriguing possibility. See, one of the issues that may have caused John the Baptist to doubt, or to be offended, so to speak, that Yeshua was the Messiah is because, and I hope you all got your good listening ears on this morning, okay, is because John believed 
that judgment day was supposed to have arrived along with the Messiah. And as of his jail, jailing, it certainly had not. See, for Jewish society of his day, it wasn't miracle healings that were the expected sign of the Messiah, but rather that the Messiah would be God's judgment, his hand of judgment on the Romans who were oppressing the Jews, and secondarily upon those Jews who were viewed as wicked. So, one has to reasonably imagine that John is making the calculation that if Yeshua were the Messiah, so then where's the divine judgment? And if there's no judgment, then probably Yeshua is not the one who is coming, which would have been a great disappointment to John. See, John expressed his view on the relationship between the coming of a Messiah and Judgment Day in Matthew back in chapter 3. Listen to this. This is a long excerpt here, but I'll just read it to you. It starts in Matthew 1, goes through 11. It was during those days that Yochanan the Immerser arrived in the desert of Judah, and he began proclaiming the message, Turn from your sins to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the man, Yeshiao, that's Isaiah, was talking about when he said, The voice of someone crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of Adonai, make straight paths for him. Yochanan wore clothes of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, from all over Judah, from the whole region around the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were immersed in him by the Jordan, at, uh, in the Jordan River. But when Yochanan saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to be immersed by him, he said, You snakes, who warned you to escape the coming punishment? If you really have turned from your sins to God, produce proof, uh, produce fruit that will prove it. And don't suppose you can comfort yourself by saying, but Abraham is our father. For I tell you that God can raise up for Abraham's sons from these stones. Already the axe is at the root of the tree, ready to strike. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown in the fire. It's true I'm immersing you in water so that you might turn from sin to God, but the one coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. He will immerse you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. He has with him his winnowing fork. He will clear out the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, but burning up the straw with unquenchable fire. So, you see, John is loudly and unequivocally proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven, when it arrives, so does God's judgment. And the one that John is paving the way in the wilderness for, the one whose sandals John is unfit to even carry, is going to be the same one who winnows the Lord's harvest and burns up the straw, the chaff, the unrighteous, with terrible fire. All of these were just common judgment day terms and beliefs in the first century. So obviously John is speaking about judgment day and the divinely sent one who will usher in the apocalypse. So the problem is that Jesus is here, but God's judgment isn't. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. But the apocalyptic end hasn't happened. Yeshua's response essentially says to John, John, right eye or wrong pew. Yeshua lists Isaiah's messianic prophecies that he has publicly fulfilled. So essentially he tells John, draw your own conclusions. Yeshua isn't bringing the judgment with him that Isaiah and other prophets foretold and the Jewish people expected. Instead, for now, he is bringing with him the other things Isaiah spoke about, the good things, the good news of the kingdom of heaven 
accompanied with things that must come before Judgment Day, healing and miracles. Now, how are John and the Jewish people to untangle this? I mean, understand, the idea of a first and second latter days, that did not exist in the minds of the Jewish religious, religious authorities. The idea of two separate appearances of a Messiah was not widely known or accepted. In the first century, the main proof of a man being the God-sent Messiah was that the end of days and judgment upon Rome would come with him. That's how they'd know. That's what they thought. It is these very same issues that vexes Christianity to this day, and it has elicited all kinds of beliefs and church doctrines concerning the sequence and the timing of Christ's advent, whether or not the end times has already happened, whether or not the kingdom of heaven is here now, is there going to be a rapture of believers, and if there is, when? And I could list a dozen more issues that are unresolved, put it nicely. So taking all of this into consideration, in John's eyes, who is Yeshua? And perhaps, who is He, even in the eyes of His own disciples, Yeshua's own disciples? See, the expected judgment hasn't happened. The world has not ended. Yeshua has not named Himself as the Messiah, nor even as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He has not said He's the prophet Elijah, but He has said He's the Son of Man. So it's no wonder that John is a bit confused. And I'm not at all sure that the answers that Yeshua sent back to John's inquiry sorted things out for him. Now, Jesus is continuing to teach His people and His followers what Scripture says about Him and what the prophecies say that He will visibly fulfill versus what Jewish traditions say about a Messiah, especially that He would lead the Jews into a successful revolt against Rome and into a, a new golden age of Israel. He is doing <laughs> the amazing things that prophetic scripture said he'd do, as opposed to introducing himself by title and then just counting that as sufficient proof. Now, I want to pause here momentarily in hopes of making an impact. See, what the Jews believed in Christ's day, they trusted as truth. They trusted it. They thought, they were certain, that they were correct and that their belief in their correctness about a Messiah was well-founded because the vast majority of Jewish society agreed. Majority rules, right? But as Yeshua was regularly demonstrating to them, especially in his Sermon on the Mount, he didn't really know Holy Scripture. The average Jew got his and her religious training in the local synagogue, operated by the Pharisees, who had their own interpretations, agenda, and set of doctrines. Whenever Scripture was taught, it was taught often, it was taught through this lens, and it was intended to fortify and validate the doctrines that they already held. Certainly not to hold those beliefs up to the light of the Bible to examine them. It's the same today within the institutional church. You know, <laughs> I don't quote CNN very often.
You're welcome. But CNN took a poll at least a decade ago. I remember this so well. And most churchgoers they polled listed a series of Christian platitudes that they claimed were biblical in their source when in fact most of them were not. And I can tell you from first-hand experience from several years ago at a preparation course for door-to-door evangelism, very few people who came to that could define the term sin beyond anything God doesn't want you to do. I knew people who truly thought Christ was the first Christian. I knew others who said there was no point to studying the Bible because if God felt they needed to know something, their pastor would tell them. I can tell by the nods of the heads that many have heard the same thing. The church today is very much like the synagogue was 2,000 years ago. The Bible is present, but mostly in name only. Rather, it's the interpretation of the Bible that is taught. And few of the congregation know what is actually in the Word itself. Therefore, the understanding of what a Messiah is, what He does, why He does it, who God is, the moral principles we are commanded to live by, what's ahead of us and more, are taught not according to Scripture but according to Christian traditions. Such a folly cost the Jewish people of Yeshua's day dearly because they couldn't square what they were taught to believe versus what Jesus showed them was actually in the Torah. And the prophets. See, Seed of Abraham Torah class isn't Jesus, but it's our purpose to help as many believers, Jew or Gentile, as much as possible to have their eyes open to God's Word. When we learn His Word, then our questions, like John's questions to Yeshua, get answered. But more, when we heed His Word, we learn how to obey God, which He says over and over is the basis for our relationship with Him. We also inoculate ourselves against confusion and fear and untruths and heresy that can cost us dearly even when we're so very certain we have our spiritual houses in order. The message Yeshua was sending back to John must have been in the form it was brought to him, verbally. It may well have been that the two disciples John sent asked Jesus John's question publicly. So Christ answered publicly. Verse 7 continues with Yeshua having some things to say about John the Baptist to the crowds. Now, likely this took place after John's disciples left. Now, interestingly, we see now, watch this, the subject changes. And it changes from who is Jesus to who is John. Thus, after using the response to John as a public teaching about himself as the Messiah, now Yeshua wants to say some things about John. Or it could also be that, as some Bible scholars claim, verse 7 begins a different and separate episode. And since it concerned John the Baptist, Matthew simply inserted it right there. Now you be the judge. Either way, the following verses contain the same meaning. Yeshua asked the crowd who they went out to see when they went out to see John the Baptist. Now this question is meant to get the people to think. It also assumes that some or much of the particular crowd 
he was talking to had indeed gone to see and hear the Baptist and had probably been immersed by him. Otherwise, the what did you go out to the desert to see, reed swaying in the wind, is kind of disconnected. It makes me think that Jesus had traveled south a ways so as to encounter people, a crowd from Judea, where the desert was located. In contrast, those of you that have been there know the Galilee is hilly and fertile and has a big, large, fresh water sea of Galilee for fishing in. Now, reeds were lo usually located in shallow bodies of water or along riverbanks, but such sites were commonplace. So the meaning is kind of a gentle sarcasm that says, now obviously you didn't travel out to the desert wilderness to see something you can see every day. Or Jesus continues, did you go out to the desert to see some well-dressed person? Well, John wasn't very well-dressed. More gentle sarcasm. A well-dressed person was usually a king or a prominent wealthy aristocrat, but not only would people not usually travel just to get a glimpse of them, but such a person of status and wealth certainly would not be standing around in a barren desert wilderness. So the people wouldn't have foolishly gone looking for someone like that, which just happens to be out in the desert. In our day, we would say all this that Jesus is saying is, is a no-brainer. So asked Yeshua, why did you go out? Finally, no more sarcasm, but rather the answer to the question. They went out to the desert to see a prophet, a man they believed to be a true prophet of God because of his sudden appearance at a time of national oppression and moral degradation within the Jewish religious system and among many segments of Jewish society, but also because of John's message, a message that brought that the end of the long wait for a deliverer had arrived. Jesus says John is more than a prophet, more meaning of a run-of-the-mill prophet. And he then proceeds, Jesus does, to quote from, Math, uh, from uh, Malachi 3.1, which says, Look, I am sending my messenger to clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Yes, the messenger of the covenant in whom you take such delight. Look, here he comes, says Adonai Zephod. In Matthew 11, verse 10, Christ plainly says about John the Baptist that he's the one about which Malachi speaks. Therefore, John is that messenger. But there is more we need to take from this simple quote. Remember, there were not chapters and verses in Yeshua's day. So the way to direct a person, a Jewish person, to a passage in Scripture was to quote a snippet from it. The hearer was then to proceed to find or recall the whole passage not merely the snippet that was quoted. So when we read a little bit further into this passage from the book of Malachi, we get this in Malachi, same chapter 3, but verses 23-24. Look, I will send to you Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with complete destruction. Look, I send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. Thus, the messenger is Elijah the prophet. Elijah never died. He was taken up to heaven, still alive. And in a couple more verses, Yeshua will directly actually address that. Now, in the meantime, Yeshua continues to extol the high place in God's eyes of John the Baptist by saying that among those born of women, a fancy way of saying all human beings ever born, there has not arisen anyone greater than him. 
But then Yeshua colors that statement with a qualifier, a however. He says, however, the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John. Now, this is another of those statements that causes such headaches for Bible scholars and real serious heartburn for Bible teachers. Clearly, Christ is making some kind of a wordplay to make a point. But what is it? What's the point? Bible academics have rightly pointed to the part of the statement that says, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven. This is the key phrase to unlocking Yeshua's statement. So, what is Christ getting at about the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John? All sorts of answers with strange twists and turns have bent forward including that Christ was actually referring to Himself, if you can believe it. But for me, the obvious answer has been overlooked. Matthew 5, 17-20 Don't think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke will pass from the Torah. Not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness is far greater than that of the Torah teachers and the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua is repeating a term, the least in the kingdom of heaven, that he used in his famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount that had to do with an individual's eligibility for membership in the kingdom of heaven, as well as that member's status within a hierarchy for members of the kingdom. Next week, we'll begin with just how this must pertain to John the Baptist.